exciting about going through the Bible is you don't miss a thing. You get to taste every single book, every single writing, and it just seems to get better and better and better. I'm so jazzed with what I'm coming across in Joshua. It's just amazing. <coughs> you know, it is true that it's, it's um, astounding that the Lord would want to not only indwell us with His Holy Spirit, as we talked about on Sunday, but that He would want to empower us with His Spirit. When we look at that second baptism... Let's talk about it. It's pointed to, we get illustrations of it in Joshua 3 and 4, both chapters. We'll be in 4 tonight, continuing on and looking at this. But the fact that God would not only dwell within, but would then come along and want to pour His Spirit out so powerfully that we literally begin to function and move and live like Jesus. But we're not perfect, and that day won't come until we get called up. But the fact that I can be better tomorrow than I am today because of His Spirit at work in me, what a wonder. What a great measure of hope because if it's left up to me, it's not looking good. But with His Spirit active in me, I can do things that I cannot do otherwise. I can be engaged in the conquest, as it were, the people of Israel are in the conquest of the promised land. I am in the conquest of the promises of God. As my faith grows and develops, as your faith grows and develops, we are taking possession, again, of those promises. We are moving forward into the land. Oh, not the promised land, but the land of promise. The guarantees. You know, throughout Scripture we're told that He he molds us and changes us. He sanctifies us and consecrates us and makes us new. And it is a process and it is a journey. And it's not something that I just come to instantaneously and I'm all done. I mean, I find a nice comfy place in a church and sit down and I'm done until Jesus calls. Not at all. It is a constant battle forward that I'm called to. And Sean, I just noticed your hat and I want it. The In-N-Out Burger hat. If you've never had an In-N-Out Burger out of California, these things are like to blow your mind die for. Best burger in the world. And they do. They're a Christian and they have scripture on the inside of the cups. I found that out. Lost my coat looking at it because it's on the bottom there. Pour it out. But... Anyway, sorry. See, this is the thing. We live in the flesh. We, we move by the Spirit. And we can even talk in the Spirit. And suddenly the flesh catches my attention. And it's in enough burger time. <laughs> this, is, this is the life we live. And, and David, i got to say to you again, I want to say it to all. David, you know, I asked how he was doing. He said, I'm selfish. And I said, well, welcome, welcome to the Christian walk. I mean, that's what we are. And it's that interesting balance, that recognition that we are still in the flesh. That keeps us humble. But we are empowered by the Spirit, which, which gives us great joy and hope. Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4. The children of Israel finally are crossing into the land of promise. And you know, they must have thought about it often. During their 400 year sojourn in Egypt, when they were down there, they must have been thinking, I wonder what the land that our forefather Abraham lived in was like. And, and Isaac and Jacob, I wish we could get back there, rather than be in this place here, this, this Egypt. You know they had to hope for it during their wilderness wanderings. They knew they were, they were wandering. There was a punishment there. They knew everybody of the generation that rejected God had to die out. And so they wandered, but they wandered with hope. And that hope led them through as they considered, we're going to someday get to that promised land. We know they camped near the promised land for an extended period of time, but now <laughs> they're back. And God wants them to retake the land that He had already given to them, that already belonged to them. It's already their possession. 
You know, I've said this before. I just want to make sure the point gets home. It's already their possession, but now they have to take possession of it. And I've used this, this example two or three times before. It's the presents under the tree. The Christmas presents are there. They're labeled. It belongs to that person. But that person's got to open it up to take possession of what already has been given to them. And so Israel is coming into the land. And as they cross the Jordan River, we witness what we could easily call their second baptism. We piggyback off of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.2 where he compares the Red Sea to baptism. He says they were baptized into Moses and into the Red Sea. And Paul makes that, that illusion there. that Oh yeah, that, that's kind of what baptism is like. When I give my life to the Lord and I step out in, in obedience and I'm, and I'm immersed, and I'm talking about water baptism. I'm immersed into that water. Peter said in Acts 2, 38 and 39 that the promise is for anyone who repents and, be, and, and is baptized. You, you get baptized and you receive the presence of the Spirit. Now, Thinking about this a little bit more from Sunday, you might say, well, I was never baptized. I was never immersed. And yet, I'm pretty sure I've got the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And that's because the indwelling of God's Spirit is connected to, but not necessarily limited to, water baptism. Peter says, you want to know that you've got the Spirit dwelling within you? Get baptized. It's a guarantee. That way you will know. It doesn't mean that you have to be to get the indwelling of God's Spirit. But it's guaranteed that you will if you do that. And so for those of you who say, well, I, I haven't been immersed, but I know I've got God's Spirit in my life, I say, terrific, get immersed. <laughs> you know, God will do it different ways with different people. You see that throughout the book of Acts. Some are baptized and receive the Spirit right then. Others are not baptized, and they receive the Spirit, and then they get baptized. So there's a connection there, but it's not a limitation. So just don't think of it that way. I, I've, I've talked to people in the past who have said, well, so you're saying I'm not really a Christian, so I'm baptized. No, I'm not saying that. You're a Christian when God calls you a Christian, period. But he also invites us, calls us, commands us. To be baptized. The first baptism. Water baptism. Turn in your Bibles quickly. Keep your finger over there at Joshua 4. We're going to come back to it. But before we even open it up, Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. And there's just a few things I want to say off of what we talked about on Sunday. And if you weren't here, here on Sunday, it's okay. It's still, this will still make sense to you. But a couple things that I, I want to clarify that, that we talked about on Sunday. Acts chapter 19, verse 1 shows us two things that happen very close together. They're closely related, but they are separate things in this experience that Paul has when he comes to Ephesus. It says in verse 1, chapter 19 of the book of Acts, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. That's new news to us. Well, we believe. We didn't receive, though. So Paul says, verse 3, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So they had gone down to the Jordan, and John the Baptist baptized them. Well, that was a baptism of repentance, of, of preparation for the coming of Messiah. But that was not a baptism into Christ Jesus. When you're baptized into Christ, that's where that point of the indwelling spirit is connected 
And Paul said in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who was coming after Him, that is, Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Watch what happens. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and they were in all about twelve men. Why is this story here? Two things happen. Very close together, but there are two separate events that are going on here. Paul indicates that if someone is baptized into Jesus, they should at that time at least have the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no. He said, well, how were you baptized? Because if you were baptized into Christ, you should have received the Holy Spirit. But, but they didn't because they weren't baptized into Christ. So he says, get baptized into Christ. That's taken care of. But then, after they're baptized, Paul lays his hands on them. And the Bible tells us specifically that the Holy Spirit came upon them. And this is the distinction we made on Sunday morning. There is the presence of the Spirit in the believer's life, the presence, but there's also the power of the Spirit. Different thing. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when my Spirit comes upon you. That's different than presence. By the way, the Lord wants you to have both. And it's not an either or, and it's not some get it and some don't. God is saying, I want to give you power to live this life. I want to give you power to be my witnesses. I want you to live with power so that you can function the way I've created you to function. So that you can live a life that is pointed toward my return. So there's a baptism of presence and a baptism of power. In Joshua 3 and 4, as Israel crosses a second body of water... Not the Red Sea, but this time the Jordan River. We see in, in it a, a type of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a really interesting. The more I think about this and process it, the more interesting it is. You've got a sea, the Red Sea. They go into the sea. They don't do anything. The Lord parts the sea. They just go in. And it's done for them. And they go in, and that's a picture of the, of the first act of, of baptism. But the baptism of the Spirit... How interesting that the second time Israel crosses the body of water, it's a rushing river. What is it that Jesus said? He said, out of you are going to flow waters, living waters. They're going to flow from out of you. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but I get excited about this. The Israelites didn't have to cross the Jordan River. Did you realize that? This was not a make it or break it uh, travel plan. God just could have, could have just as easily taken them around to the west, up along the Mediterranean on what's called an easier road, the King's Highway. And had they taken the King's Highway, they could have come right on into the Promised Land without having to cross any river. God takes them around. First of all, takes them across the Red Sea. They didn't have to do that. They could have gone up around the Horn of it and back down around, but they go across it. And then down through Midian and back up, and they wander around, you know, 40 years. But they come to the Jordan, and God parts the Jordan and takes them across there. That Red Sea crossing involving a sea which they crossed as they were coming out of slavery. That's like baptism, isn't it? Now I'm coming out of slavery. I am just fresh out of Egypt. I am, I'm, I'm finally out of the world. I believe Jesus and I'm going to get baptized to proclaim to the world my obedience to Christ. I have been changed. I have been saved. I'm out of Egypt. Hallelujah. But there's more. The Jordan crossing involves the rushing river which they crossed as they were coming into promise. Baptized as I'm coming out of Egypt, the Holy Spirit comes upon me as I'm coming into promise. It's an amazing, wonderful distinction. I encourage you to continue to look at that and consider these, these two bodies of water and the symbolism here. First, baptism, symbol of salvation from the old life. The second, about coming into promise. Hmm. 
The Red Sea was still. It was a still sea. Picturing a moment in time. The Jordan River is flowing. Picture of something that's ongoing, that's dynamic, that's a continuation. And the waters continue coming down. Same thing with the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is dynamic. Ever growing, ever changing. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can receive the power of the Spirit. Have a wonderful experience with that. And then have a completely different, more radical experience a year later. Or five years down the line. Because the Holy Spirit is dynamic in how He functions in our lives. And listen, you can have as much or as little as you want. As much or as little as you desire. I said this on Sunday, man. You can, you can come into Christ, you can be indwelt by the Spirit, and you can be comfortable there. And God does give you the freedom to sit back and warm a pew or a metal folding chair, whatever the case may be. He gives us that freedom, but He offers as much as we want. John the Baptist prophesied of Jesus, saying in John chapter 3, verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. John's talking about himself. Man, I'm just flesh. But he who comes from above, he is over all. He says, he who comes from above is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. People aren't going to listen to him. But John goes on and says, He who has received his testimony has set his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, speaking of Jesus, for Jesus gives the Spirit without measure. That's a great line to underline in your Bibles. John 3.31, actually 3.34. He gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, Jesus doesn't get out a Pyrex bowl and measure out cups or quarts or gallons of His Spirit, you know, depending on what kind of mood He's in. He gives without measure. There is no measuring rod. He is a flowing river. His Spirit rushes and doesn't stop unless we stop it. Unless we say enough. If we want to quench it, we have the power to do that. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Do not quench the Spirit, Paul says, which indicates that we can. That we can put up the block. We can build the dam and keep the river from flowing if we choose to. Paul says, don't do that. John says he gives his Spirit without measure. He gives his Spirit to indwell believers without measure. He never runs out. Which means that we don't have to worry about too many people becoming believers in Christ for fear that maybe the Spirit's going to get weakened in us. <laughs> he keeps pouring it into my life, and the more people who come to Christ, the more His Spirit just keeps pouring out, and it never stops. Amazing. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist speaks of the Spirit being poured in without measure. But in John chapter 7, Jesus now speaks of the Spirit rushing out without measure. God pours it in, and He says the person who believes and receives this is going to flow out of them. John 7, 38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water, and He spoke of His Spirit. So the Lord gives of His Spirit without measure, like a great sea, into the lives of believers, but He desires to overflow like a rushing river out of the lives of believers. And that's the dynamic of His Spirit. How do you know? How do you know when someone is truly spirit-filled? And that's a question that kind of goes around in the church, and, and there are different churches that have different ideas. Some, some churches say the way you know someone's spirit-filled is if they speak in tongues, and if they're not, they, if they don't speak in tongues, they're not spirit-filled. 
Paul says all do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not do miracles, do they? All do not heal, do they? Now, my position on this, personally, is that speaking in tongues is not the mark of whether or not you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's one. It's an example. It's a gift. But it is not the mark. What is the mark? How do you know? How do you know if you're truly filled with the Spirit? Or if someone else is? I mentioned three things on Sunday. First off is when the form of the Spirit is showing. When the form of the Spirit is showing in your life. What's the form of the Spirit? Jesus. Because Jesus is the most spirit-filled person who ever walked the face of the earth. So if you're looking like Jesus, chances are you're spirit-filled. Because He was. Because He is the picture of a spirit-filled person. Luke says He he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And when He was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down upon Him. So when the form of the Spirit is showing, there's a good indicator. Secondly, when the fruit of the Spirit is growing... The form of the Spirit is showing, that is, I'm looking more and more like Jesus, but the fruit of the Spirit is growing. What fruit? The love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, Paul says. That's the fruit. If it's growing in your life, are you more patient this year than you were last year? fruit of the Spirit is growing. Are you finding it easier to love people even when they're complete jerks? fruit of the Spirit is growing. talk more about that in a minute. But it's not just when the form of the Spirit is showing or the fruit of the Spirit is growing. It's also when the function of the Spirit is overflowing. And what is the primary function of the Holy Spirit? Does anyone remember what we said on Sunday? The primary function, the primary reason the Spirit is given. Witnessing. You will receive power so that you can be my witnesses, Jesus says. That's why I'm pouring out my Spirit. So that the world will look at you. And by the way, witnessing doesn't necessarily mean door knocking. It doesn't mean standing in line at Safeway and saying, Hey, by the way, come to church on Sunday. Thanks for my bags and groceries. Witnessing is your lifestyle. You are a witness to Jesus Christ. When you are living, when you're the form of the, of the Spirit, the form is, is there. When people look at you and you're different, and you're unique, and you're Jesus-like, you are a witness. You can't help it. It flows from within you, as Jesus said. So when the form is showing, the fruit is growing, and the function is overflowing. That is the power to live as a witness and a servant of others. Now Joshua, this whole book, we can get back to chapter 4 now, the whole book is about faith. As I've said, taking possession of the promises of God. But it also portrays what happens as we take possession of those promises and what happens as we begin to live a spirit-filled life. Things change. The Spirit moves as we take possession of the promises. Paul listed three primary aspects of a believer's life in Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13, Paul said it's faith and hope and love. It's so simple. We don't have to complicate it with all sorts of theology and and grand ideas about this, that, or the other. Paul says three things, faith, hope, and love. If you have faith, hope, and love, those are the aspects of a Christian life. And faith, hope, and love, these three things abide. But of course, the greatest of these is love. You look at Joshua, you see this playing out right before our very eyes. Joshua chapter 2, we see a measure of hope. 
A measure of hope or a message of hope. It's shared by the spies. If you look at verse 24 of Joshua chapter 2, the spies come back to Joshua and they say, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. This is a different kind of, of response from the spies. The original ten spies who went into the land 40 years before said, They're big. We're like grasshoppers. We can't fight this. But these spies come back and they've got hope in their eyes. We can take them. They are scared to death of us. Let's go. Let's go now. We can do this thing. The Lord has given them into our hands. That's hope. So there's a message of hope that sticks out right there in Joshua chapter 2. Chapter 3, we begin to see a move of faith. This is new for Israel. This is a great experience. Verse 13 of Joshua chapter 3 says it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. But they got to believe. they got to trust it's going to happen. They have to step in, step out, step up in faith. Chapter 3 is all about that, that stepping forward in faith. So we see this message of hope in chapter 2. We see a move of faith in chapter 3. And now, chapter 4, we see a memorial of love. It took me a while this week to get to this. To see this and understand what's going on in chapter 4. It's a very interesting chapter. For basically it just concludes the crossing of the Jordan. It just concludes that, then getting across and into the land. But something happens here that's amazing and it's interesting. And it's a picture of love. 1 Corinthians again, 3.13, Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love. If I had one hope for tonight, it was that we would center our, our thoughts on love. That we would try to get our arms around this concept of what does this mean for you and I to love. To be loving in the way that God is loving. And the love that we're going to see in chapter 4 has everything to do with a bunch of stones. What stones, you might ask? Chapter 3, verse 12, there was a little verse that kind of went zipping by on Sunday. Nobody asked me about it. I was wondering if someone would, because it doesn't seem to have any relevance whatsoever to the chapter. Verse 12 in chapter 3 says, Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And then you read the rest of the chapter and say, Okay, why? What are the twelve men for? What have they to do with anything? Well, remember the Bible wasn't written originally with chapters. We put those in there. So chapter 4 is just continuing on with what happened in chapter 3. And we're going to see why these twelve men are chosen. Joshua explains it. Let's check it out. Verse 1, Joshua chapter 4. Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves... Twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man for each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you shall take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. 
Then he says, let this be a sign among you. So that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Do you see it there? The sign of a spirit-filled life. Maybe it's a little difficult to see, but here's the thing. In years to come, children would see these stones. They'd see it piled up. You'll find this out later in the chapter at a place called Gilgal. They're going to stack up the 12 stones into a monument of sorts, a memorial. And when children see those stones, they'd say, Dad, what's up? What's with the stones? And that memory device, we call it a mnemonic device, the Lord's great with these, He leaves there so that the fathers then would be able to point to that and go, Oh, you reminded me. I was going to tell you, but I forgot. And you reminded me. Memory device. That's about what happened when we crossed the Jordan River. It draws them back. And think about this. Why do we set up memorials? It's so we will remember things or places or or events. I read the book recently, Flags of Our Fathers. Great book. Really, really intense. I didn't see the movie. I heard it was just too bloody. But the book was awesome, and it's interesting. I wonder when I first picked it up why it's called Flags of Our Fathers, plural. Because the picture on the front, it's about the Iwo Jima Memorial and where that came from and the men who raised that flag and that great raising. And if you've seen the memorial, it's a stunning picture, especially if you see the original picture of the guys doing it. They're all you know, hanging together and trying to get that flag up, and you can just imagine, imagine you have bullets flying all around and, and the chaos. But man, they got that flag up. And that's what America thought at the time. It's only later when they realized that was the second flag they put up and there was no battle raging at the time. The first flag went up and some general wanted it. I want that flag. Go up and get that down. Okay, we'll put another one. Get a bigger one. We'll put that up. And there happened to be some photographers on the top of the mountain and they caught a picture of it. But the angle and the way the flag was flying and the way the men were around the flag, it captured the imagination of America and it bolstered America's willingness to stick with the war and to fight. By the way, after that flag raising, some 7,000 men would lose their lives on Iwo Jima in a bloody, bloody battle. One of the bloodiest battles of the South Pacific in World War II. We need memorials because we forget so fast what happens. The Vietnam Memorial, have you seen that in Washington, D.C.? It's one of the most stirring of all the memorials when you go there because you just see names on a black wall listed one after another after another of young men and women who lost their lives in Vietnam. The Lincoln Memorial, there's a stunning one. When you stand there before it, he's huge. I didn't realize Lincoln was that big a guy, but he's, he's huge. You know, he's stories tall. But it's moving to go from each... Cheryl and I lived in Virginia for three years, and while we were there, we went back to D.C. Time and time again, we were about a half an hour outside of D.C., and we would just go from one memorial to the next and read what was up there. And by the way, don't tell anyone, but our founding fathers believed in God. <laughs> Wouldn't want the world to get that one. But there are reasons, gang, that we need memorials. It's because we forget, and we need to be reminded. That's what these stones are for. By the way, there are a couple of reasons why we tend to lose our memories. The first one is old age. Second one... I forget. A guy went to a doctor. A guy went to a doctor and, uh, and he was having a memory problem. And he said, Doc, I, I'm, I'm having incredible problems remembering things. The doctor said, well, how long have you had this problem? And he said, what problem? 
Do we have trouble remembering things? <laughs> it's getting worse. I'll stop there. You know there's enough information stored in our brains to fill the Library of Congress, which contains over 17 million books. And even so, we're talking about what's actually in our brains, the information that's actually there. And even though we're told we only use 8% of our brain's capacity, some of you use a little less, I'm not going to say who, we forget 92% of all the information that comes in. And the Lord knows this about us. And so He says, let's have some memorials. Let's put some things out here to help you remember. Because our retention of information is so poor, the Lord sets up anchor points for us. Things that we can look back to. By the way, I had a person ask me about baptism this week. That's one of the reasons why God came up with the idea of being baptized. It's an anchor point. There are many people who are not really sure when they gave their life to Jesus, but they can remember that day they went into the water. It was so cold and their toes turned blue. They remember. Anchor point of faith. We have another one that we do week in and week out and it's precious and and to me the most important thing that happens on Sunday morning when we take communion together. It's a memorial. An anchor point of our faith. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. And he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The monument of Iwo Jima proclaims the death of those 7,000 plus servicemen on that tiny island in the South Pacific. Every time someone stands before it, they are drawn back to that moment. And that's what communion is for. To proclaim the death of Jesus. To remind us of the passionate love of God that landed him the place that he took on Calvary. Arms spread wide, nails driven through, crown of thorns on his head a memorial of his amazing love for us we forget things so God gives us memorials there are actually two memorials set up in this chapter read on verse 8 says thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded they took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan just as the Lord spoke to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel and they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there Then, now that's the first memorial, it'll be a Gilgal, again it'll tell us that later in the chapter, but that's the first memorial. Then the second one, Joshua set up twelve stones himself in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and there they are to this day. One would be set up on the other side of the river. The other one would be set up right there in the river, right where the priests were standing. Not one memorial of twelve stones, but two memorials of twelve stones. One at Gilgal and one in the river. And no man would ever see the one in the river. In fact, I'm tempted when we go back to Israel. Since you're with me, let's get some scuba gear. And let's hit the Jordan and start looking for those twelve stones. They've got to be there. The Bible tells us they're there to this day, at least to the day where Joshua was writing. Those stones under the water, because once the water was cut loose again, the people crossed on dry ground. Once it was cut loose, it comes rushing down and covers up 12 stones. It doesn't make a lot of sense, at least for Joshua and the people. What child is going to look in the river and go, are there 12 stones in there? What's that for? 
And what foreigner is going to notice 12 stones buried deep under, you know, a rushing, raging stream? No one's going to see them. Why are they there? It's curious. There is, I believe, a reason, and I'll tell you that in a few minutes, verse 10. For the priests who carried the ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And when all the people had finished crossing, the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel just as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. And we got to pause for a moment and once again consider that Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. These are, remember, the two and a half tribes who decide they want to stay on the other side of the Jordan. They don't want to cross. They like the land there. They don't want to come into the the heart of the promised land. They want to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so they plan to do that. But here we see, as they promised Moses, their men in battle array are going to go across first, fight with their brothers, and then come home. But there's a problem here. And it's a numbering problem. Because according to the numbering of men from Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, over the age of 20, able to stand and to fight, listed back in Numbers chapter 1, there should be approximately 108,250 fighting men. What does it tell us in the text? How many are there? 40,000. We're short a few, aren't we? Now listen, because there's a spiritual principle here that's huge. That's exactly what happens when we have ties on the other side. When we have things that are important to us on the other side of the river. You see, Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, they couldn't send all of their fighting men over. Though they promised they would, they couldn't do it. Why? Because they would leave their wives and children and livestock at total risk. Any other nation could come against and destroy all their stuff on the eastern side. So they had to leave some men there. And so the full force of strength from Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh wouldn't cross. Only 40, less than half would actually go with and fight with Israel. They couldn't just leave families and flocks and fields completely unguarded. And that's the way it is in our spiritual lives. You either go in with all you have or you don't really go in. Parents, you either go with your children or you're not going. Wives, husbands, you either go with your spouse or you're not fully going because you've got something on the other side. You've got something that's outside of the land of promise that you're still connected to that you've got to take care of and that keeps you from fully going forward in the Lord Jesus. If you're going to go, go hard or go home. Bring it all with you. It's taken me... Well, Corey is 16 now. It's taken me 16 years to learn this about my own children. I can't go anywhere. I'm not willing to bring them. If Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, if they brought their families with them, how much harder would they be willing to fight? If their whole family's there, if everything they own came across with them, they would pour themselves into battle, and all 108,250 men would have been there fighting with Israel, but they weren't. It was less than half because they had interests that they had to protect back there. And anything we leave behind in our lives, we'll need tending to. 
Which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? The idea is not to stop witnessing. The idea, Paul is not saying don't associate with unbelievers. We have to associate with unbelievers because we want to bring the message of the gospel. But he says don't be bound together with them. And that's often applied to marriage, but he's not even talking about marriage. In fact, I've seen more damage done in business partnerships where one was a Christian and one was not. Damage done in friendships where one is a Christian and one is not. And yes, in families where one is a Christian and one or more are not. And the concern is back across the Jordan. And the encouragement for us is to grab hold of every single thing that we have in our lives and bring it with us. To really take possession of the land, bring it all. The flocks, the families, tend to the fields of promise, not the fields of the past. Revelation 3.15, God said to Laodicea, I know your deeds, you're neither hot or cold. I wish you were cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And what the Lord truly calls us to is radical Christianity. Radical Christianity, that which the, uh, the news media would, would point at and say, see, they're nuts. You don't want to be like that. I'll tell you something, and this may sound a little odd, but I have a degree of respect for radical Islam. Not for what they do, not for the horrendous homicide bombings, not for the murders, but I do respect the fact that they are living to the fullness of their faith. And they are. A true Muslim, if they are really going to be 100% follower of Muhammad, is going to be a suicide bomber. Is going to be bloodthirsty because as I've said many times in here before, look at the founder. Of any religion, go back to the founder and see what that person was like. And live like that person and then you will be fully accepting your faith. We do the same thing with Jesus Christ and what happens? We become more loving. We become more compassionate. We become more self-sacrificing. We're not like a homicide bomber who kills himself to kill others. No, we would sacrifice ourselves to save others. That's what Jesus did at Calvary. That's radical Christianity. It's taking all that I have and going forward with it and saying, I'm going to live my life for Jesus. I'm going to, my children, Keith Green had a great song and it was one that I prayed early on when, when Corey was itty bitty. I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. I pledge my wife to heaven, not wives, that may sound a little arrogant. I'm just saying that as a husband, I will do everything that I can to see that my wife pursues the gospel as well. I would hope she would pray the same for me. And she does. I pledge my daughter to heaven for the gospel. I pledge, as much as it relies on me or depends on me, everything that I have control or authority over in my life to go forward for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Radical Christianity. Look at the founder. Live like the founder, Jesus Christ. And by the way, speaking of the founder, look at verse 14. Another one of these great Joshua-Yeshua parallels. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. On what day? On the day Joshua stood in the Jordan River. What happened on the day Jesus stood in the Jordan River? God exalted him. 
We read about this. Matthew 3.16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Exaltation as he stands in the Jordan, just like Joshua. Amazing. John chapter 1, verse 32, John the Baptist testified of Jesus, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained upon Him. And John says, and and don't miss this, I just caught this Sunday, I did not recognize Him, but He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And John says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And if you weren't here Sunday, listen, John didn't recognize, it wasn't that he didn't recognize Jesus, he was his cousin, of course he knew who Jesus was. Cousin Jesus, they grew up together. What John didn't recognize was that Jesus was in fact Messiah. And he recognized it when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. Now I know that's a little weird because we kind of think, well wait a minute, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, wasn't he already God? Absolutely, in nature, in character, fully God, fully man. However, also fully void, if you will, of the power of the Spirit. He gave that up. Check it out in Philippians chapter 2. He was, kinuto in the Greek, neutralized. Though he was in very form God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He neutralized himself when he was born a baby. And it wasn't until that moment of his baptism, when he came up and the Spirit came upon him, that then, suddenly, boom, the power of the Spirit was there, and John, his own cousin, went, Oh, you're Messiah. You're the Son of God. Wow, I didn't even know. I didn't even see it. And Luke said, Luke 4:14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And when did it happen? When he stepped into the Jordan and was baptized and exalted, and that's exactly what happened with, with Joshua. Verse 15. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, saying, Come up from the Jordan. There's a, there's a picture there in verse 17. We won't go into tonight, but possibly a connection to someone else, to us being called up out of the Jordan. Come up here, the Lord will say. But verse 18 going on, it says, It came about when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up to the dry ground that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. As before. And once again we see a picture of faith preceding the overflow. They had faith. They went into the Jordan on dry ground. Their faith kept them in the Jordan while all the people crossed over. And in faith, they walked out of the Jordan. And it was after faith that the water rushed, that the water flowed. And again, Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Faith first, and then the flow of the Spirit. And sometimes, by the way, God will take years developing a faith to handle the flow of the Spirit. Larry, you were just mentioning this earlier. Sometimes in some people's lives, and the Spirit works differently with each one of us, don't expect to be a cookie cutter of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not how He does things. 
But in some of our lives, it will be years before we recognize the power of the Spirit at work in us because all that time, God is hard at work developing our faith. Because the Spirit flows out of us after the faith is in us. And God wants to develop that so that His Spirit can flow. Reading on verse 19, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month. And they camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. So now they're in the land. Verse 20 tells us, Those twelve stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. So that's memorial number two. Memorial number one, remember it's in the river. Twelve stones. And now memorial number two, it's at Gilgal, twelve more stones. And he said, verse 21, to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. Second monument set up at Gilgal. Visible presence. They're among the people in the land. But I want you to notice something. Verse 21, it sticks out. He says, when the children ask their fathers. It's an incredibly important masculine component. It doesn't say when the children ask their mothers. It doesn't say when the children ask grandma or Aunt Bessie. He says, when the children ask their fathers. It's significant because, gang, and we miss this in the church, there is a masculine component to the teaching of the children. There is a fatherly responsibility. And in most children's ministries across America and churches, what you will see is a majority of the teachers are women, not men. And I think maybe we're missing something. Not that the women can't teach. And ladies, don't get me wrong. I mean, you have an incredibly important role in the body. But i got to talk to the men for a second and say, where are we when it comes to our masculine, our male responsibility? Let me show you something. This is interesting. Mark chapter 10 is that beautiful picture, and you've probably seen many paintings of it, where Jesus is bouncing the children on his knees. Where he says, hey, suffer the little children to come unto me. Don't stop. And the apostles say, hey, stop. Don't bring the kids, he's busy. And Jesus says, no, bring them. Something i never seen before this week. Mark chapter 10 verse 13 says, They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. In all the pictures I've ever seen, in all the portrayals of this, the people bringing the them in that verse are women. The moms are bringing their little babies up to be kissed by Jesus. Like you would see at a political rally, the mom bringing her little baby up to be kissed by the, you know, the candidate for whatever office. There's a problem with that because the Greek there, the them, is autois and it's the masculine form of the word. Which means the ones that were bringing the little children to Jesus were not the mothers, they were the fathers. They were the men. And something the church has missed that Israel understood was the responsibility of the father. The father was the teacher of the Torah in the home. The father was the one who taught the kids. It is an anomaly to see a Lois or a Eunice, mother and grandmother of Timothy, teaching. It's an anomaly because in that culture, in that day, the women taught the children only when the man was unable to do so or dead. The responsibility was first and foremost the fathers. And I think one of Satan's greatest works on earth is men staying home to watch football on a Sunday morning while the wife takes the children to church. And it's tragic. 
and it's an absolute abdication of a responsibility. The them were the men. Men were the ones rightly bringing the children to Jesus, not the women. And I I get on my high horse here, and it's funny, I guess the older I'm getting, either I'm becoming really sexist or I'm just seeing things more clearly. But we were at a, at a presentation in my son's school just last night, um, a, a nativity thing at Oak Harbor Christian School, and it was really cute. And they had up on a big screen while the kids were singing the songs, they had pictures they had taken that told the nativity story. And it was children from the school dressed up as you know Mary and Joseph, and they had the little baby Jesus, and the shepherds, and the three wise men, and all that. The Bible doesn't say three. That's another thing for another time. But they're all there, and I noticed, and it is like this everywhere you go. The angels were little girls. And man, were they cute, little sparkles on their cheeks, and they had the little, you know, thing above the head, and the little white wings, and the little white outfits. And I'm looking at these little girls, and that's really cute, but I don't think I've ever heard an angel in the Bible described that way. A cute little girl. Where is the masculinity in Christian faith? I'll tell you what, not only was Jesus the most spiritual man who ever walked the face of the earth, he was the most manly man who ever walked the face of the earth. He was a stud. And he was trying to teach his apostles to be the same thing. Don't tell the children to go away, guys. Be men. Invite the children in. So for what it's worth, you fathers, and those of you who will be fathers one day, don't usurp that. Don't give it up. When the children were told, ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? And, and ladies... If you're already married, would you encourage your husbands to the role that they've been called? And if you're not married yet, would you look for a man who is really a man of God, who considers it important enough to take an active role in teaching Jesus to the children? And by the way, I'll throw that out. Any of you men who want to get involved in a, in a precious and highly important ministry at the bridge, get involved in children's ministry. Go teach on Sunday morning. Gather little kids around you and teach them. And you'll have a dramatic impact in their lives. Well, what are we to teach them? Verse 23. It says, you're going to teach them this. The Lord your God, verse 23, dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea when he dried, us, dried it up before us until we had crossed. And verse 24, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God Forever, And that's the message of the Jordan. And the message on the lips, by the way, of the Spirit-filled believer is that you may know that God is mighty. That you may know that He is God over all the earth. That the hand of the Lord is mighty. That, that you may fear Him. That you may come into a relationship with Him. The Spirit-filled believer is the one who is going to be preaching Jesus, talking about Jesus, and introducing the mighty hand of God to this world. Now, Twelve stones. Look at this chapter. Two different memorials. Twelve stones in each one. Twelve in the river. Twelve at Gilgal. Now I want you to process this because it goes back to where we started. The idea of love is bound up in these memorials. Twelve are in the river. Twelve are at Gilgal. One monument is unseen. The other monument is seen. But in each case, the twelve stones are packed together as a monument. They're packed together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, Coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is the sign of someone who has crossed 
the Jordan. What is the sign of someone who is spirit-filled? Listen, the sign is both seen and unseen. The evidence is something that's visible and tangible. The evidence is also something that is invisible and intangible. It's both. And it's love. Because love in our lives is both visible and tangible, like the 12 stones at Gilgal, and love in our lives is invisible and intangible, like the 12 stones under the river that nobody would see, but the Spirit would keep flowing over. The water would keep flowing over time and time again. Working those stones, softening those stones. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14, Paul describes and defines and gives doctrine related to the gifts of the Spirit. Those are the two chapters that are most full, I guess, of the Spirit, you could say, of any of the chapters in the Bible. Paul just goes on and on. He talks about prophesying and he talks about praying, prayer languages, praying in tongues and healings and miracles. Chapter 12, chapter 14, it's all there and it's packed in. And then he stops right in the middle and he injects something. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, beginning about verse 27. And just follow this thinking through with the Apostle as he writes. He says, You are Christ's body, and individually you are members of it. And God has appointed in the church apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and gifts of healing and helps and ministrations and various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greatest, greater gifts. Paul says, man, go after the gifts. Seek and take possession of the promises. The gifts are good. But, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm a loud mouth. I'm a blowhard. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag. And is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never fails. There are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. There are tongues, they'll cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, and the perfect thing is Jesus, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith and hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
And people pursuing the gifts of the Holy Spirit and desiring the power of the Spirit working in their lives can very quickly lose all that power if it's for the sake of the gift and not for the sake of what the gift can do and that's create an area of love. Lead us in loving people more. If the gifts are just for my own personal spazzing out (laughs) and not for love, then I might as well be crashing on a cymbal and annoying people because that's what happens without love. Paul says these gifts are real and they're wonderful and they're powerful and they are for you and they are for the body but they are for the purpose of love. That the body like living stones can be built up together to the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you heal a lot. No, no. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you raise someone from the dead. By this all men are going to know you're my disciples if you can speak in different tongues. And You know what the verse is. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Paul says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Oh, there are eight other fruits listed. But the language indicates the primary fruit is love, which expresses itself in joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things are born out of the fruit of love. It's primary. It is more important than anything else. Twelve stones, twelve tribes, one memorial. Well, two. One remains in the flow of the river, and the other is seen and taught about in the families of Israel. One is in the flow of the Spirit. The other is among the families and friends and people of Israel. And the bottom line is we can teach about and we can talk about love all we want. We can point to memorials of the Father's love in our life, like baptism or like communion, like times of worship. But gang, the love the Lord has called us to is a love that we cannot develop on our own. It requires the Holy Spirit to love like Jesus loved. To look at people the way Jesus did demands the flowing of the Spirit in our lives. We can't. We can't come up with that. It requires the flow of the Spirit in the secret places of our hearts. And we can force it and we can fake it for a time. But ultimately we will be seen for what we are. And that's charlatans who really don't love. We're just pretending without the Holy Spirit. Because the true flow of love is a supernatural thing. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, (laughs) with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And yet we see churches splitting apart. We see relationships divided among Christians. We see brothers and sisters turning their backs on one another. And we fall out of love and that diligence to preserve unity. Again, note that picture of the rock. See this? Twelve stones built up together, unified, one memorial, one monument. That unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, gang, the unity of love is born in the Spirit. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. 
That's when the Lord will know you're my disciples, Jesus said. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes, that connection of unity and the oil. And you know what oil is a picture of in the Bible? It is a picture of the Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, guess where unity goes? Out the window. We wouldn't be unified. And you know what's amazing? We probably aren't even aware of how hard the Spirit is working to keep us together. To unify us. Without the Spirit, we'd blow apart in an instant. The anointing of the royal priesthood gang, it's the oil of the Spirit. And this is the proof of the Spirit-filled life more than any other proof you can possibly consider. It's love. Like the memorials of Gilgal and Jordan, love is seen and love is unseen. It's seen in the actions, but it's also unseen in the motives, the hidden places of the heart. Well, I can say I love you all I want, but I alone know if that's a true statement. And I alone know if the Spirit is working it out to teach me how to truly love someone who I'm saying, I love you, but in my heart I'm going, because I have to. (laughs) And the Spirit's saying, no, not because you have to. I'm going to make it a want to. I'm going to make your statement of love, your outward action, your Gilgal, if you will, your Gilgal love, I'm going to make it Jordan River love. Deep inside, where no one sees it, you're going to feel it as real and deep, true love. Gilgal is the obvious actions. Jordan is the hidden motives. Gilgal is the place of tangible teaching. Showing each other and our children how to love. Jordan is the thoughts and the intentions of the heart under the direction of the flow of the Holy Spirit. And again, we can have all the faith and hope in the world. We, like the children of Israel, can have hope we're going to take the land and faith to stand in the river. But if we don't have love, clang, crash, bang, and that's all we've got. Ephesus had faith. The church at Ephesus had hope. It's a powerful, strong church. Book of Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. When Jesus wrote a letter to Ephesus, But they lacked the key ingredient, the most important thing to Jesus. He said, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. That you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And you haven't become weary. Good job, Ephesus. You got faith. You got hope. But this I have against you. You left your first love. The love's not there. For all the faith and hope in the world, if the love's not there, you're missing the most important component. Therefore, Jesus says, remember, remember from where you have fallen. Ephesus needed to remember, to come back to the memorial, to return to their first love. And by the way, as we take that memorial communion every Sunday together, and sometimes more often in our homes, as we take up communion together, it is a reminder not only of the love of Jesus Christ at Calvary, but of the love He has called us to. So that as we take it with brothers and sisters together, we are sharing in a reminder of the Lord to love each other as He first loved us. Maybe, maybe you're like Ephesus. Maybe that's you. You've wandered where the anointing has gone in your life. Maybe the passion that you once had for the Lord seems to be drying up. If there's not love, you're banging on a symbol. And I've been thinking about this, and, and rather than pray, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit, 
I think there's a prayer that precedes it that is necessary and it's in essence saying the same thing and it's Lord teach me to love fill me with your love give me that ability to love the way you have loved me and John says in 1 John 4.16 we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. Amen. Father, teach us to love. Lord Jesus, the older I get, the more complicated relationships seem to be. And the more I discover that loving is not only the most important thing we're called to, it's the hardest thing. It is so much easier for us, Father, just to kick people out who annoy us or bother us. Just to turn our backs on those relationships that are hard work or stressful. Just to ignore and cut people off. That's easy. And sometimes, Father, I confess to you, that's preferable. But it's not your way, Lord. Father, I repent of the areas of my life where I have been unloving. I repent as a pastor when I have looked at people without eyes of love. And Father, we before you ask that you would, as you are teaching us about your spirit, and it's wonderful, Father, please don't let us get out of the Jordan without learning how to love. Make us lovers, Father. Lovers of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lovers of each other. So much in love, Lord, with your ways and your people that the world cannot help but see and take notice. Thank you, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.